Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. the LFC Day Trippers Fatback 4 podcast special. I'm your host, Keith Plunker, and I am delighted to be joined by football historian and author Peter Kenny Jones. And Peter's going to discuss his upcoming book, Little at 100, about the life and times of the great Billy Little. Peter, how are you? Um, I'm still good, thanks very much. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Uh, just to give you all a heads up, me and Pete have had a great chat there for the last while and the show did not record. So we're going to come back in and do it all again. But um, yeah, as I said there, Peter, you've got a book coming out now at in November, isn't it? And it's it's just about Billy Little and any regular listeners to the show know I absolutely love football from a boy gone here. It's football that's not maybe spoken about anymore and not touched upon and you know, Billy Little is such an important figure in the history of Liverpool Football Club that it's it's great to get this information now. So if you want to give us a bit of um, a bit of input into what the book is about and, and what you had to do to, to get it to where it is. Yeah, so obviously basically a biography of his life. So start to finish, Billy Little, um in celebration of what would have been his, his hundredth birthday, which is coming up in January. Um obviously Calls it a family portrait because I've just tried to speak to as many people as possible, really. So speaking to family, friends, teammates, supporters, and just try to make the full picture of his life. You know, I didn't want it to be, you know, just quoting newspaper after newspaper or or whatever. Just I wanted to be the full story of his life, but maybe with you know unheard of stories and just try and look at it a different way rather than just going game by game and just trying to give a different side, but just tell the, the full story of his life and why he's so well regarded and, and so well loved at Liverpool. And just so the people know, you, you're going to, in the in the um, compiling of the book you've spoken to, was family members of Billy Little and relatives and ex-players. And, you know, you got a real feel for Billy Little, the man, didn't you? Beyond what, you know, we may know from, from seeing the odd video or seeing reading the odd article, you really got a feel for Billy and his life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the the video that was available isn't great. You know, if you look at Cheriton from the time, it's the British Pathé and a movie tone, and basically it's just like a 10-second report of the game. You might see getting ahead to a ball that went in. You wouldn't see anything else other than that of a move. So it's hard to get a full idea of what the games were like. But that's why I tried to speak to as many people as I can. Spoke to you know, his sister, Reno, was a massive help. Spoke to his his twin son spoke to Tom Ogilvy, his cousin. Uh, I've got some you know, sisters-in-laws and family friends. And then, but obviously, a lot of supporters who were really keen to share the story of him. And there was, I think, there's one of the eight, nine ex-players he played with. Uh, one ex-Scotland international. So it's just, yeah, just trying to get 
I tried to meet as many people as I could, and that was my dad's job helping me to write all the interviews out. So that was I had him, paying, I was paying him in black pudding to write up that, all my interviews. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. In Apprentice, it you had your Apprentice. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Um, that was it. Just try and tell the full story of his life, as I said, and speak to as many people as I could, really. Yeah, excellent. So take us back to to the start. So I mean, it's in the title, really, isn't it? Little at one hundred. So he, Billy was born in nineteen twenty two. So January. So we're coming up to that hundred hundred birthday. So he's born. Take it away. Where is he born? And <laughs> yeah, what's so, his early life yeah, like? Yeah, so he's in in some um, town hill, Dunfermline. It's just son of a miner. So a lot of a lot of footballers were at that time, and his mum and dad were just really. Wanted to make sure they all had a as a as a tray behind them. So, you know, obviously Billy's one was was being an accountant and he was he was really good at school. He, he sounded like one of those kids you date in school. He was good at everything. He was just yeah. good at football, good at rugby, good at athletics, clever, you know, passed with flying colours with everything. So I think you know, for for him it was you know, it was quite a good childhood and his mum and dad were, were just really sure on making sure they were all set up for life. They didn't want them all all down the mind. So Billy was the oldest and which led the way really, you know, his, his brother Tom played for football as well and he, he was looking at to be a cobbler as well afterwards. So when his football fell through a bit, he um, he got to go on and have a, have another pastime. So I think they obviously they were they were caring parents and really tried to map out the, the life of the kids and you know, it was a lot of lads and yeah, there's two twin siblings at the ends, Rita and George and say so Rita was the one who helped me the most with the book and yeah, it was just a normal 1920s, 20s, 30s childhood, really. And luckily for, for Billy, he was just really good at football, which which helped take him out of the small town life. Yeah, so that's it. I mean, as you say, he's a, he's he's got a talent for football and he's playing youth football up there, um, locally up, I suppose, around Dunfermline or in the, in the locality there. And he is brought to the attention of Liverpool scouts by a famous uh, a famous name. Who who was it that spots him or recommends him to Liverpool? Yeah, so he, he just signed for Liverpool at the time from from Man City. It was uh, Matt Busby, so he was on the golf course with with one of his ex-City teammates and basically just got a tip that City were looking at this lad in, in Dunfermline who was really good. Uh, but they weren't sure they were going to get the deal over the line. Obviously, Liverpool, he was new to Liverpool. He was just trying to maybe try to impress. Obviously, he, was, he came as an experienced player. He tipped off George Kayla manager and just said, might be worth going to have a look at him. Sounds quite good. And that's what they did, really. And you know, His, his mum and dad were were vetting all the clubs that were coming to watch him. I think Partick Thistle and Arsenal put offers in to take him and so did Man City, but they wanted to make sure he had a family home to live in. He had a job lined up and he was going to be guaranteed to be to be playing football. So it was it was a hard deal to make for a, a 16-year-old in Dunfermline, but his, his mum and dad were confident in his ability and they wanted to make sure he, he had a life set up if, if it did go wrong. So you know, they, they looked after him and, and fortunately for Liverpool, they, they're the ones who got a signature. Excellent. So so he moves to Liverpool at 16 years old and it's a big, I suppose, upheaval for, for someone so young. But where does where does he end up? How does he how does he get to Liverpool and, and what's his early days like at the club? Yeah, so obviously it was nineteen thirty-eight, so it wasn't long before the war began. But obviously they didn't know at the time. He he was set up with you know, a former Liverpool player, Ned Doig, which I think is how you say it. Um, it he he passed away with his widow and, and his son still lived in the clubhouse. So he basically asked if they wouldn't mind you know, Billy coming and living with them and 
they just look after him. Obviously, that was something again that the the family encouraged because they want him to have like a, a family environment around him. So he was just a young lad in Liverpool. He was very religious, went to church. You know, didn't really was he never drank, never swore. So he wasn't like he was <laughs> going around town with yeah. his top off or anything. He was just doing his stuff. He was working and playing his football and impressing in the reserves and, and in the A team and you know making small headlines just saying that oh this this young lad looks like he, he could have some talent and unfortunately for him and obviously the whole world the war started and, and really interrupted his career but it looked like he was just on the cusp of getting into the team before it all kicked off. Yeah, so like that, nineteen thirty-eight. He's a sixteen-year-old lad. He's, he, as you say, he's he's about to make it big at Liverpool, and the war breaks out. Nobody knows, you know, what what what's lying ahead there. But um, is football continues during this period, doesn't it? He's well, it's it's not um, it's not recognised, unfortunately. But but Billy plows ahead and and has a successful wartime career, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, he was he was definitely part of the team, and it was you know, the first game after the war broke out when you know, the game stopped being official. Yeah. He was he was straight in the Liverpool team, and it was only a friendly against Preston. But then the first wartime game he, he played, and you know that that first season, uh, he he was part of the squad. He was he was definitely making appearances. Because he scored nine and sixteen in, in his first wartime season. You know, that as a sixteen year old, so. He was he was a big part of the squad, and I said maybe it did help him a bit. You know, maybe he wasn't fully ready to play first team football, but it gave him that access to it. It got, let him play with the best players that you know, the club had to offer, and he really got to be bedded into it. There was style of play, and to go and watch, you know, go and play in front of thousands of people at Anfield and get you know, the atmosphere and the players he was playing with. So he he was definitely part of the squad, and because he was so young, it took him a few years before he was actually sent off to the war. So it probably did help him a little bit. You know. Terms of the war, giving them access to first team football. Yeah, indeed, and uh, wartime football. Uh, you know, it, it, there was a lot of moving around, and you know, games here, there, and everywhere, wasn't there? Like, so it would have been a pretty colourful time to be playing. Uh, he wouldn't have been just playing with Liverpool at the time, was he? No, definitely. Yes, we travelled around England, um, most notably played for Chelsea quite a few times. Um, went up to Scotland, played for Dunfermline, which obviously was you know, his childhood team, and it was it was a big one for the family because it was the first time they could really watch him play like a high level of football. And you know, all the press and all his family were were they, were they proud to have him there. And then again, he was went to Northern Ireland. He had to turn down Elijah Scott because he wanted him to play. He was playing with someone else at the time. And then he went to Canada and played where he wasn't supposed to play. So he had to play under a pseudonym of, of Bill Tanner. And uh, basically, he said, they're like, oh, do you play football? He said, not really. And they went on and scored four in about 10 minutes. So they realised he was he was quite a good player. So I think it, it, even his wife told the story of when he was in training in Warrington, you know, he, he basically broke out of the barracks one night so he could go and play football for Liverpool the next day because he was just missing football so much as a young lad and he just wanted to keep playing wherever he was. So it was, you say, it wasn't just for Liverpool, but he, he was definitely as an itch that needed scratching with football and fortunately he could keep it up while he was, while he was fighting in the war. Yeah, because he, he did, he was in the RAF, wasn't he, during the war, and he, he did actually, um, you know, it wasn't all just playing football and waiting on yeah. the, the war to kick off again. 
Yeah, yeah. So he was a navigator in the RAF. So obviously, wouldn't fly the planes, but would, would, would be alongside them. And you know, people he met then were you know one of the people he met during the war was his best man. And you know, he, it was you know, it was a really important time in his formative years as, as a footballer and as a man, really. And yeah, he was he was definitely involved in the war efforts. And you know, I was telling the story that you know, his family made a lot of jokes that he was really bad at navigation and found it ironic that he was given the task of navigating RAF pilots around to go and to go and bomb Germany. But that's that's what his that's what his job was during the war. Well he knew how to hit the target, I suppose they were on to say. Hey. So yeah, um, I like that. I like that. Yeah, um, we didn't know thinking about it. That's why we started again. That's why we started again. Um but look the the war is going on a uh, tumultuous time for everybody and and nobody knows what's happening but billy is out there he's he's playing football he breaks his leg in a in one of these games and you know we we were talking earlier a leg break now you've all the modern medicine and you've all the 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 tools to to get back to 100% but back then a leg break well players probably play through a lot of injuries a leg break was a significant um Possibly in the significant setback in his career before he even got going. Yeah, yeah, that definitely. You know, so Dribble Cisse's career, although it didn't end, definitely took a massive hit by the fact he had the two leg breaks. You know, and talk about how many years earlier you could easily end your career with a leg break. So for him to come through that, obviously, it would have been a big scare at the time, and I'm sure he would have been would have been maybe a, a bit of peace in his mind the fact that he, he had his accountancy to fall back on but you know he was so football mad he would he would have been devastated so to have that you know it was nearly taken away from him but definitely would have helped spare him on to know you know when hopefully the world was back to normal he could go make sure he made something in football and you know didn't waste his talents or lose it excellent yeah so the war happens the war comes and goes and eventually Games are recognised again and records are being recognised. So Billy comes into the team in um, 45, is it? Or 46, 46 in the FA Cup, 45-46 season, FA Cup game. Yeah. Uh, comes in, um, but you were saying something interesting. There was still wartime games sort of going yeah. on around then as well. And it was... Yeah, obviously, sorry, go on. It's just no, obviously because the, the, the war ended in, in the September. So obviously... The, the traditional season starts in the August and they never said, you know, well, we'll just rush the season through and, and change the fixtures. They basically just said, right, well, you can have the rest of the year as still wartime while we try and get everything sorted, but the FA Cup will, will count. So, it was, you know, they were playing FA Cup games that apparently mattered more than the, the two wartime friendlies that were either side of it. But, you know, it wasn't, they weren't just friendlies, they were in leagues and they had the cup at the end of every season. It wasn't yeah. just for nothing. That was probably the the most meaningful, meaningless season that they had, but I think yeah. was the only thing that, that mattered. So it wasn't until 46, 47 that the, you know, the first division came back. Indeed. So he's he comes into the team and he's a, a left winger. And, you know, football now and football then, it's a totally different kettle of fish. So Billy's playing as a, as a winger back then, but the formation, it would have been the wide of a front five nearly, wouldn't it? And then ahead of maybe a back five. So it was the, the formations that people played were were very different. But Billy was a winger predominantly in his early years before moving maybe more centrally. And we're going to talk about um, his, his goal scoring prowess and how, you know, it could and should have been better than it is now. So for a wide player at the time, like Billy's... Um, 
we can talk about his, his, his numbers at the end. So I have it out down that he made 534 appearances and got 228 goals, which places him, um, I don't know, sixth or fifth or something in the all-time goal scoring charts. But he's actually, it's a disservice to him, isn't it? Because the, the war yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah I tried to add it on that book. Obviously, he was, I think, yeah, he's sixth at the moment, so he would have been fourth top goal scorer and he would have been his second top appearance to the way around, but I got it in there. Yeah. But basically, you know, just uh, him and all of his peers, you know, that a lot of their career was robbed and, and for him to to be as high up as he is and be one of the players you know, in that list, because obviously, you know, the people he's up amongst, you know, it's the, not all of them had, wartime affecting the career obviously he was mm. probably the, the one with the most of his career taken off him so again it just shows the the impact he had on the club at the time and I think he, even when you look at his first his first season he played 40 games and he scored eight goals it wasn't he really grew into being the goal scorer that, that he, he went on to be I think the fact that he, he developed his game changed so much and it was just a totally different style of play as you say the five up front and I've tried to explain I think you know for me, I can try and call myself the football historian. I um, I didn't fully understand the formation, so I tried to like lay it out visually so you can see like what it actually means. So you know, being outside left and number eleven, as you say, it was like basically playing Andy Robertson's position, but without having to track back. That was basically what he was. So to do that and score so many goals, you know how many the Trent and Robbo scored. He don't score many, so to yeah. for him to be able to have that involvement and we cut inside, he could shoot even fourth. He was scoring with his head, and also later on in his life, as you say, he moved more centrally because you know he had such a good eye for goal. So I think you know his ability out wide is is it's ridiculous. You know, you say what Salah's like now; he's a winger up amongst all them, but you know that's what Billy was and. No, he just he just deserves a lot of respect for how many goals he scored. Indeed, indeed. So, I mean, back then in the nineteen fifties and sort of post-war in the English game, you had sort of the the superstars of the time, are your Stanley Matthews and Tom Finney's and all these guys, and they were uh, the trickier type of winger. But you know, the Stanley Matthews it, it beat three men and then get his cross away, whereas Billy was all pace, power and directness, wasn't he? And and that was um, just down to his hard work. And all. He was just a different type of player, wasn't he? He was different to the other great players of the time. Yeah, well, definitely all played in similar positions, but did it their own way. And obviously, there's no right or wrong way. And obviously, Stanley Matthews, the unbelievable player. And I think, obviously, for Billy to be up alongside him just shows... How important he was. I think, you know, he is overlooked a bit because maybe because he played for Liverpool. Didn't you? you look at Tom Finney and Stanley Matthews and the, the clubs they were at, you know, they, they can't be anyone higher than him because Billy's played at a club where we've had Kenny Douglas and Stephen Gerrard. He can be overlooked a little bit, but, you know, he, he was up there with, with the world's best. And for him to, to you know, to be, to be mentioned alongside those, and it was only him and Stanley Matthews who played for Great Britain more than once for him to, be amongst them just just shows how good he was and his goal scoring records and everything. So I think the style of play of him was just he didn't know what he could do. He was fast. He could beat you. He'd, he'd take it round you. He could have a shot from everyone to that he beat you in the air. So he just he didn't know what to do against them. So I think obviously that's why he was so effective out wide. Indeed, and another thing I read about him, like he'd never been booked or sent off in his career, but I don't think that was a, a big thing back then. And anyway, but people that played against him would always have said, you know, he was very hard, but very fair. And that, you know, in in an era when 
um, players were probably, you know, a lot more rough play than what what happens now. You know, he he was he was very well regarded by his peers. And when you think about it, like he breaks into the team, as we said, his debut one season and he really pushes in the following year and he win the league, Liverpool win the league, but it's the only silverware that he wins at Liverpool and it's at the beginning of his career. Do you think maybe the the, the lack of success of the team maybe hinders Billy's reputation outside of, of Liverpool? Well, yeah, definitely. You, know, it's, you, know, you say when someone sticks to a team through thick and thin, and there literally was no thinner point in, in Liverpool's history than, than when Billy was there and they were coming 11th in the second division. But the team he came into was, you no, know, it was a good blend because obviously it was it was hard to do transfers while the war was going on. So when he came back, they had a lot of experienced players who had been there for a long time. They had a lot of players who were at the peak of their career when the war started, who were now aging. And then young players like Billy were coming into it their early 20s. And for them to, they wanted to hit the ground running and they had the ability to do so. So it was it was a good blend of players at the start, which I think that maybe they just didn't replace the experience as the years years passed on, which is my why well, maybe Liverpool weren't as good as they were. But obviously the 46-47 season, it's unbelievable. You know, there's a chapter on it in the book, but the the way that season ends was just it's like it makes the Aguero moment look like nothing. You know, the season was a joke. Like the last few games it was everywhere and they found out they won it while Liverpool were playing Everton in the Lancashire Cup final. So there was a ground full of people and because there was no TV or anything to watch it, that was the best place to listen to it and they were changing the scoreboard and then when when they found out that Sheffield United had, had got the result that they needed for them, there was hats getting thrown and everything. So it's a different style of football, but it, it, it still the drama was there and you know, he was, that team was a successful one and you know, they had Phil Taylor, who was a great captain, Jack Barmer, who was, who was really pivotal in the end of that season. And Albert Stubbins, who was the record signing, which I know another interesting fact was that that was the record signing was broke in his first season, forty six, forty seven, and that transfer fee wasn't broken until his last ever season, sixty one. So it shows the boards just yeah. basically were right behind him at the start, and then they just, as Shankly said, they were like gamblers on a losing streak. They just were too scared to make any changes. So I think the way that the club was was getting run, it was just getting worse and worse. And unfortunately for Billy, you know, all his success on and only one trophy and then the FA Cup final nineteen fifty, all his success was really at the start of his career. Yeah, indeed. And he goes through um the nineteen fifties and you know Liverpool get relegated in I keep getting this fifty five is it they go down um yeah. to the second division and Billy is then, you know, he, he's not. It's not that it's unfair to say he's a one man band at that stage, but the the over reliance on on Billy was was huge, and and we were speaking earlier comparing it to another Liverpool great, um, Stephen Gerrard, maybe during periods when expectation was just heaped on him. And if you know Billy didn't do it the way Stevie didn't do it, Stephen Gerrard won an awful lot of you know the the comparison. I'm just talking about the expectation, you know grabbing a boy to scruff, playing in teams that probably weren't up to his level. And Billy just kept going and kept going. But they, they went down, there was managerial changes happening and, you know, a lot of change in to and from. But Billy was the constant throughout the 1950s, wasn't he? He was, he was consistent and he was hitting goals and he was he was always the shining light. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's, I think it is a good comparison with Gerard. Obviously, it's, it's easy to say because it's more recent. But, you know, 
Billy Hart offers to go and, and take the mega bucks wherever he, he wanted to go. Colombia separated yeah. themselves from FIFA and, and just said, you know, they, they were happy for him to pay him a blank check, basically, but he wanted to stay where he was. Aston Villa the, the weekly him. wage wasn't it? Sorry for coming across you there. Yeah, the, the weekly wage was like twelve quid or something at the time. Yes, and yeah, Colombia so went up to twenty at the end. Yeah, but they, they yeah. were just paying whatever. Yeah. They that he took like Alfredo Di Stefano and all went um, to play there at Millonarios, I think, in Colombia, and they, they just took the cream of the crop and and it was outside of FIFA and caused all sorts. But Billy resisted yeah. the the urge to go over there. Yeah, well I think obviously it was I think it was probably the the, the biggest discussion he had and what he probably said, should they go? No. Because everything else he would even ask, should they go? He just was turning everything away. But I think he just for him it was the fact that you know Liverpool have been so good to him and the fact no they they gave him that that job as he was as a sixteen year old they gave him the house one of the first clubhouses that they bought was because they realised you know basically Liverpool wasn't as fashionable or as attractive as London was for a lot of players around the country so they they started trying to buy clubhouses and rather than just trying to entice people in they they made sure they gave Billy one the first one so. I think he appreciated what the club had done to him. And then you say the leg break at the start. He'd fought a war. He'd not long met his wife, who was from Liverpool. I think it all adds together. And, you know, it wasn't just a pursuit of silverware for him. You know, he, he realised that the club had been good to him. And what a lot of players aren't like today, he realised that he probably should be nice back to them. So, yeah. obviously, it, it helps that the wage meant he couldn't earn any more anymore, anywhere else. But... Yeah. He still had offers to go and play top level football, and he, he wanted to stay at Liverpool. He wanted to be the one to drag them out of the second division. Yeah, and another thing you, you touched on earlier was that his father passed away, I think, in early in his Liverpool career, was it 1951 or something? His father passed yeah. away, and he, he, he brought his family down. And it was like he wanted to lay roots in Liverpool, you know. We, I suppose the, the city meant a lot to him, even at that sort of early age. But he pushes through and, you know, he's, he's in a team. And for the book, um, would you have spoke to many of his teammates at the time? Like, would you have uh, had had some um, contact with some of the people that he played with? Yeah, so obviously, I you know it, it's unfortunate that a lot of the people I tried to speak to have, have even passed away since I've written it, Tommy Leishman and Roger Hunter recently. So, obviously, it was, it was sad. I think I looked at it, I haven't got the exact number, but I think there was like 95 players or 120 players, something like that. But it, again, it was surprisingly small amount for how many years he played yeah. with. But that's how many players he played with for Liverpool and only nine of them were alive at the time. So you know, it really is a, a period that's on the brink of extinction. It's, it felt like an honour really just to speak to some of the people because I think one of them was, was Alex South who I spoke to and he only played, I think played like four games for Liverpool. But, his stories he had were just was unbelievable. And, you know, you, you might look at the stats of these people and you disregard them, but you, you realise the stories they've got because they spent years playing with, with Billy. And I was lucky enough to speak to the list here, Gordon Wallace, Gordon Milne, Johnny Morrissey, Jimmy Melia, Keith Berkinshaw, George Scott and, and Alan Banks. And they all had different insights into what he was like and what the team was like. A lot of them were, obviously, because of how long it's been since he played a lot of them were younger players coming towards the end of his career but again they just commented on the respect he had and how much you know, Bill Shankly really looked to him at the end and you know, another great one who I spoke to was Ian Callaghan who's, who's done a four-way for me and he was the man who, who basically took his shirt you know, grew up watching him on the cops and then go and basically go and wear number 11 and, and try and do what Billy did and obviously 
he ended up breaking his appearance record. So it was it's, it was a good you know, passing of the flame. And then got to speak to Alan Hansen, who showed what it was like when he was a fan. You know, while, while Billy was watching every week and he tried to get the players' advice, and then Jamie Carragher, who, was, who also helped and basically showed how his legacy lived on through through Ronnie Moran and the ways you know they, they were trying to you know the fact that Billy was up there with you know Doug Leash, Sunez, all, all the biggest names, and you know Rush, he, he'd always be up there amongst them because Ronnie Moran had played with them as well. So it shows how highly thought of he was even long after he passed away. Yeah, because he came, they done that 100 players who shook the cup and he, he came sixth in that. And, you know, when you think of the the players that have come through Liverpool, you know, to for a poll to be done in the modern age, to have Billy still up there in the top 10, it, it's a wonderful achievement and a recognition of, of a hero of a bygone era. But we touched on the fact there that Liverpool got relegated in 55 and they, you know, the, the silverware wasn't happening for Billy, unfortunately, at the time. Um, but there was a sliding doors moment in uh, the 55-56 season where, you know, it, it possibly one of his most famous moments um, in a red short happened. Do you want to to, to take that away? It's a, a, a fifth-round FA Cup replay against Man City. Yes, well, I think, obviously, we're speaking to people, a lot of them, that I'd always just say, like, what's the main thing that comes to your mind when you think of Billy? And a lot of them was, you know, the fact that he was called Liverpool, the fact that he was, oh, him and only Stanley Matthews, a play for Great Britain twice, and then this this, this game and the, the non-goal, obviously, City had just gone two and up, literally seconds left on the clock, and basically they took the kick-off. Billy just on a one-man mission, took it past a couple of players, 30, 40 yards out, just hit an absolute rocket. Flew in the back of the net, the referee's whistle go and, and Anfield's a pandemonium and all the players are running off. Looks like you know it's, it's about to be extra time. And then they had to put over the tannoy, the you know, the referee had blown up for full time before it hit the back of the net and it basically just blew up into like it was just a joke really. All the fans were kicking off and then the next day the echo ran a picture with the referee's hands up after the ball had hit the back of the net and they were saying, Oh, he'd blown up afterwards, it shouldn't have counted and I would say, you, know, you can just imagine what, what social media and what, what it would be like now with you know, how much of a joke it was. You know, how much people still about like, Luis Garcia's goal and it, it would have been the same type of thing. You'd have watched that back and say, you know, what a joke. But it yeah. really was a pivotal moment because, you know, he, that was what Billy was all about. He was taking his team by the scruff of the neck and he was he was take, he was on his way to taking them to the next round or at least taking them to extra time. And I should say, well, what what happened with Bear Trap later that year shows how important Billy was and how much both their lives would have been different if the referee had waited about half a second more before he blew his whistle. Which is quite interesting if people don't know. Man City go on to win the FA Cup that year and Bert Troutman, who was a, was he a POW? Uh, he was a, a Nazi soldier, a German soldier yeah. in the war and he was a POW and... He's playing in goal. He wins the Football Writers Player of the Year that year, just before the FA Cup final, and has a collision against Birmingham and breaks certainly uh, three or four vertebrae in his neck. I don't know if that's class as a full neck break, but he breaks his neck in the game, plays on, gets man of the match. And it so nearly wouldn't have happened. You know, Bert Troutman is famous for that. Now, I know he plays on afterwards, and um, I'm sure he's... He wouldn't have liked in the neck break, but um, it could have been so different for Billy if they they go through. That could have been an FA Cup win, which the FA Cup then 
is a different kettle of fish than what it is now. It's it's much more beloved and much more highly regarded back then than um than it than it is now. And Liverpool hadn't won it even at that stage, so yeah. he, he was maybe robbed of a of a big moment. Yeah, I would definitely say that how important the cup was at the time. And obviously, I think they reached the final in 1914, and then obviously Billy was part of the 1950 FA Cup final, and obviously mm-hmm. it was a massive blow because they'd beaten um, Arsenal home and away that season. Yeah. And obviously, they, I think when they got to the, when they reached the final, they were top of the league by a few points, and obviously going to the FA Cup final, the season just completely fell apart, and they finished outside at the top four, and they lost the final. It just all went wrong, and they would have been the first post-war team to win the double had they, um, had they done that so it, was, it really was a massive one and obviously to have that moment again and they knew they had FA Cup prowess and they had some massive games against Everton and they were always the big they got the crowds going so they knew how important the FA Cup was and as you say just to, to have that moment robbed from him and, and from the fans it was it was really controversial at the time yeah, a tough one to take. And I think he took over the captaincy then as well, did he? He became the Liverpool captain in his latter years as well. Um yeah. from Lord Ewells, so I could be wrong. Um with Tyra yeah. at that age. Yeah, I think it was it was it was it was a bit of a tough one because really, it, it changed quite a lot in that period. it was never like a really official time that he had it. And he um you're right there. <laughs> yeah, so that whacking the knee <laughs> off the table. <laughs> Sorry, don't worry. Um, so yeah, he was yeah, he, he had the captain's arm, man, but it wasn't for too long. But I think you know he was he led by example, he wasn't someone who, who would ever shout a ball at someone. So I think maybe when your team's in the second division and, and struggling a bit, I think maybe he needed someone who was gonna put a rocket up someone. So I think that's maybe why he didn't hold it for so long. But the respect he had amongst the players, which was why he was awarded you know, the armband, so they didn't really wear it, but the armband at that time. And it was a, a period, as we touched on earlier on, on on the Ghost Show, was you know the second <laughs> division back then. So he, he spends the second half of the nineteen fifties up till the the end of his Liverpool career playing in the second division. Um, it's it's unfair. It's a shame maybe that he wasn't playing first division football, and maybe it does sort of shadow his legacy a bit, you know, in in the wider game. But the second division, it was a tough league to to play in, as the championship is now, but. You know, there was, even though he was doing his business in the second division, it was still being noticed and would still be, you know, it's it's not that it's devalued. He was still there doing scoring goals and making all these appearances. And it, it just never really happened for him. He was part of an era then before, I think, Bill Shankly comes in in 1959. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, right. Shankly yeah. comes in. And... At that stage, Billy is, he must be near 40 at that stage, is he? Or it's certainly in his late 40s. Yeah, it was, he was 13 when he retired, and that was in, in 61. So, yeah, he'd have been, yeah, late 30s, mid to late 30s. And, yeah. And a lot of miles in his legs, you know, he's playing a long time and a lot of, a lot of, um, hard yards in those legs of his, those tree trunk legs. Um, but, He's he's moved more centrally, really, isn't he? At the when the pace starts to decline, he's he's more the brain is more um what he's playing off, and he's Bill Shankly highly regarded Billy, but he was at the end of his career. But 
it's a new dawn coming in at Liverpool and you touched on the fact that it's Ian Callaghan that replaces him uh, in the team and, and, and is, you know, I was reading that in one of his last games, he's substitute for Roger Hunt, you know, and it's all these illustrious names, Jimmy Melia, as you touched on, you know, these players that are bringing us into the 1960s and it was just the end of one era before the dawn of a successful era. And it's something that we don't, you know, there's an era of football now that's on the verge of being forgotten, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, a lot of people think, you know, as you said before, football began in 92, and a lot of, a lot yeah. of the pool fans think it began in, in 1959 when, when Shankly came, but it wasn't. You know, there was, there was a lot of football before it. And I think, you know, Phil Taylor was the man who ultimately took Billy out of the team and it was in 58 and it was the first time in 20 years that Billy had ever been dropped. He'd obviously yeah. been injured or whatever, but he'd literally not missed a game from 1913 from the war start into 1958. So they, they put the house and the, the fans were gutted because, you know, he was still, he was still doing it. He wasn't a bad player. And uh, Phil Taylor tried to put him back out wide and was played him in the reserves as a winger. But, he, the fans wanted him back at the number nine because they knew that I think it was Alan Arnell was playing at the, at the time. They were just said he, he wasn't as good as what Billy was, but Phil Taylor was trying to make him back into a winger, which is you know, whether it was the right decision for the 36 year old. But he was he, he was just still so loved by the fans. And I think when Shankly came in, I think he played about one or two games to start of the season under Phil Taylor. And then when Shankly came in, I think he played 11 of the last 14 or something mad like that. So he was. Shankly realised that he, he, although he had lost a lot of his pace and you know, maybe he definitely wasn't the player he was, I think for for Shankly it was important to have someone that you know, knew how Shankly wanted to play because he played with him at Scotland and he both played together wartime football at Liverpool. So I think it was important for him to have that leader in terms of example and the football he wanted to play. And basically, Billy was replaced by Ian St. John, who was coming a couple of years later, and, and Roger Hunt. So you say it was it was a massive change over that time and Billy was just really a really really unlucky player because if he was born ten years later he'd have been part of you know that first FA Cup win and if he was born twenty years later he'd have been dominating Europe so he hundred years later he'd be worth millions of pounds. So he's just really unlucky on the time he was born but he definitely made the most of it with you know, his ability and the, the amount the crowd loved him. Indeed, indeed. And again, you know, he had a, a, a international career with Scotland. Um, we have a 29 Scotland caps, eight goals. And that doesn't seem like very much when you think of today's standards where players are regularly hitting 100 caps and, and this. But back then, it was a different time, wasn't it? Yeah, so they'd only play about three, four a season, really. You know, they wouldn't be travelling around the world. And they might have in a summer a little tour where they'd go and play another two or three games, but it was all just the home nations really throughout the season, which obviously meant that particularly the Scotland England games were huge at the time. Yeah. And obviously when he went to Hamden it was it was a massive atmosphere and he did have little tours around Europe, which you know there was a, a few good stories from them because I managed to speak to to Doug Cowie, who was one of his teammates and he was he was a big help to saying what it was like. But you know he had a good amount of caps for the Scotland player at that time and he was robbed because the Scottish FA were just the shambles, really. They only they were ran by the people who the directors of, of Celtic and Rangers and a couple of other clubs. So they just wanted to pick their own players. And then they wouldn't let the manager pick the team. They just wanted to pick like four players each. Yeah. They only took 13 players out of a possible 22 to the World Cup. 
they turned down a World Cup opportunity because they didn't think that the team should qualify because they lost to England in, in the qualifiers. So it was just, it just made no sense that what they were doing really. And Billy was definitely good enough to be part of that team. So I think he was robbed of a lot more caps, robbed of not being able to say he played in the World Cup, but for the impact he had for a, a, a player, a Scottish player playing in the second division of English football, to be able to get that many appearances and Great Britain that we touched on before, I think yeah. it just shows how good he was internationally, not just at club level. Indeed, and as we said, then is the the career Peter's out. Um, he he finishes up in sixty one. But he's still a a, f- um, a face around Anfield, and he's you know he's he's in the players' lounge for games, and he's still a big influence, and he, he's a hero to a lot of the next generation of players, isn't he? Like he's the one that they're all looking up to. He was the Kenny Daglish and the Stephen Gerrard of the of his day, and he was such a big figure. Well, the thing that always comes across about him was he was a humble man, and he he lived his life. He played the game the way he lived his life, like he was. He wasn't fussy. He wasn't flashy. He was just a a, a strong man who who played the game he loved and carried that after his life as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He was obviously a big a big part of the club and a big part of his life was, was Liverpool. Obviously, he spent so many years there, moving in nineteen thirty eight, and you you come into nineteen sixty one. Obviously, it was inevitably be retiring. But he, he never thought about going back to Scotland. So he, he wanted to stay in the city. He worked for Liverpool University. And the fans still loved him. It used to be part of the pre-match ritual. They all knew where his seat was in the main stand. He used to come out and they'd all cheer his name and he'd give him a little wave. So like he, he he was still massive in the club. And as you say, a lot of Scottish players coming through. He would never be someone who'd impose himself on them, but he was always happy to listen to them and offer advice if they wanted it. You know, Alan Hansen, when I spoke to him, he, he couldn't have spoke any high, any more highly of him, really, just saying how he was just trying his best to, to make sure they were settling in. Obviously, there wasn't many foreign players in those days, so the Scottish players were the foreigners for the time. Yeah. They, were the, they, they were the most sadders coming from halfway across the world. So for him to be able to offer advice and, and speak to them, obviously, would definitely would have helped them. And, you know, like w- with what happened with, with Andy Robbo, he was... He, he was so happy to be able to meet Kenny at the time. For all those Scottish players, they'd have grown up watching yeah. Billy Little. So, for, again, for them, it was even if it was their dad's hero, whatever, it was to be able to meet him and speak to him. And he, he, he loved the club. And unfortunately, like what, what happened with, with Bill Shankly, he, he wanted to be on the board, but they, they didn't select him. He wanted yeah. to be part of the club and they just didn't really respect him or honour him properly. Yeah. And he, he deserved a lot more at the time. But that was just the way football was. You needed a lot of money behind you to be. You didn't. You didn't really have your honorary directors and stuff like that. They have today. You needed to have the money to help with the transfers and stuff. So yeah. that might be yeah. why a different role. Yeah, a different yeah. role. It's not an ambassadorial uh, job like it is now for so many players. But Billy goes on, and like you said, he he passed away. Um, two thousand and one was it that he passed away? Yeah. Um, do you want to t- touch on that? Yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. So obviously he was. He had, he had to battle with Alzheimer's and it was something that I'd really tried to touch on the book quite a lot because yeah. obviously with, with what's going on and, and, and Roger Hunt being you know, similar and we had a lot of people in you know, Terry McDermott and Nobby Styles and you can you can list them all day. It's hard yeah. with how many, yeah, was more than so sad of, of how many people. And I just think there's, there's no accountability really. I know obviously Alan Shearer has done his documentary on BBC and I think it just seems clear to everyone that there's a link but there doesn't seem to have been like an official apology or anything. You know, 
basically the, the people in charge of football at the time just weren't taking notice of the fact that there was, especially in winter or when it was raining, there was a couple of players a game going down with head injuries, getting bandaged up, and they'd be wobbling about and the crowd would be laughing. But you know, there was didn't seem to be any consideration to the welfare. So it's, I tried to pick up on it as much as I could, and you don't know, like it, it must be a link between football, but you don't know which which one it was and what game it was. But if you look at all the examples of every time he's getting a head injury and not just heading the ball because he was so brave going in with big challenges with keepers and defenders that must be a cause of what it was and it was you know it was in the late 80s he was feeling the effect of it and we had the illness for such a long time and basically he just took a step back from from public life his wife didn't really want people to know so it was just he kind of got forgotten in that period as well because you know people weren't seeing him but I think it, it was really good that in, in 94 and on the last stand of the cop, he got to come out to Anfield. I don't think anyone would have known then he wasn't well, but yeah. you, know, you can watch the video on that. It, it's great because obviously there was no chance, proper chance in those days. It's great that he could go out full house to Anfield and they could sing his name. And I think that meant a lot to the family that he could, he could do that as well. So I think obviously it was a really sad way his life ended and you know he, he died in 2001 but a, a big part of him had died about about 20 years before really so it was it was sad but it's just indicative of what football was like at that time and unfortunately now we're seeing all these players passing away with, with the same illnesses so it's just yeah, yeah it's, it's too common at the moment isn't it as you see it touched on all those great players and, and the same thing you know and it's going to get worse unfortunately before it does get better but it's um you know, I'm looking forward to reading the book. I can't wait to to actually read the book because it's it's an area that I love in football. You know, anything that was in black and white, I'm all over. Big fan of it. So I look forward to reading it. So when is the book out? Yeah, so um, 8th of November, the day after my birthday. So it's easy to remember. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's out the first one. It's in all the main places you'd expect to see a book. Um, Amazon, W.H. Smith, Waterstones, all good book stockists or whatever you say. Um, and I've done my own, I've got it on my own website as well, which would be best for me if people want to get it from there. I've got, you can obviously buy the book, I can sign it. And I've done like a few like pre-order bundles so you can get a couple of programs with it. I think I've got one here actually. So I can get a little like programs have reproduced them. So like yeah. the clubs have let me do it. I've got like, I think five or six from his career, like the 1950 FA Cup final, his testimonial, some from 46, 47. So let's try to get that. And then his little brother's autograph book, got that from, again, from the 46, 47 season when he played for Great Britain, Scotland and for Liverpool. So it's all like the best players at that time. So yeah, it's out on all, all those main places. And if you can get it from my website, that'll be best for me. But if you just buy it, I'm more than happy. Brilliant. And we will lash the details up of the website in the in the show description when it does go out. Um and people can do that. Like support as much as much as you can, but let's let's support Peter the best way we can. Um but Peter, look, it's been a pleasure having you on with us tonight. Um I've really enjoyed it. Like I said, it, it's it's a, a a subject that I really love talking about is is football from a, a boy gone here. And this has been one that I've been looking forward to. It's took us a while to to get together and do it. But I just want to thank you for your time coming on. Uh, it's longer than longer than we probably expected. But um, <laughs> thanks for giving us that time to talk. I uh, really enjoyed it. Oh no, thank you very much, Trevor. I mean, obviously, I just think. As you said, it's a period of football that looks like it might be going extinct. And I think he's one of the best players Liverpool have ever had. So 
hopefully I can just introduce them to a few new people and then maybe reignite the little flame with the ones who, who, who do love him and hopefully just his story lives out a bit longer because he deserves that. Exactly. You know, it's it's given that bit of um, posterity to a legend that, that people are sadly, you know, forgetting about the, the legends of, of those areas. So look, anybody watching, get on, get the book, have a read, enjoy it. Uh, enjoy the the story of as as Pete said one of the greatest ever players to do it for the Reds um, but look it'll be great to get it good Christmas present as well for anybody you know it's it's a, a nice time to be to be hitting that but before we finish up if you like the show hit the like button hit the subscribe button we'll have all the details of where you can get Peter's book and yeah you can see on the screen there is is there a Twitter handle at Peter Kenny Jones get That's on me. and follow Peter and you'll be able to find out any uh, updates or, or stuff like that. And look, Pete, it was great having you on. I'd love to get you on again in the future and have another chat. Um, if you are interested in that, that would be excellent. Um, yeah, we could definitely do something along those lines. Um, but for tonight, I'm going to say good night and thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Good night. No worries. Listen, uh, take care. This has been the Fatback 4 I've been your host, Keith, and this has been our little at 100 special. Sports Social Podcast Network.